Chapter 11, A Life in Science After India conducted the second nuclear test at Pokhran in 1998, in whose development I played a part, I was given various epithets. The one that has stayed with me even after so many years and beyond the years of my presidency is Missile Man. It amuses me vastly when I hear myself being called that, for it sounds more the name for a child's action figure than of a man of science that I believe myself to be. Yet, it also carries all the love and respect that has been showered on me by so many in this country. To me it also symbolizes some sort of culmination of my journey into the realm of science, rocketry and engineering. The beginning of this journey stretches a long way back into time, so long that when I think back I wonder if it all happened to me, or is it some story that I myself read in a book somewhere. But of course, all that went into making me a person who chose the path of science really did happen, and remembering it now is like taking a journey upriver, from the delta to the source, further and further upstream I drift, till I reach the point when I was still a boy, trying to find my path in life. In many ways my real education began after I left Rameshwaram for high school at Ramanathpuram. As I have written earlier, it was the first time I stepped out of the protective embrace of Rameshwaram, my mother and everything else that was familiar. I was very much a shy small town boy then, afraid to speak out much. It was at Schwartz High School that I had my first brush with the wonders of science, and had it explained to me in a manner that set my mind alight. At that school there was a teacher called Reverend Yadra E. Solomon. He struck up a relationship of great openness and trust with me. In him, I found the guide that I needed to show me the path forward. I was fascinated by the flight of birds in the sky. I could watch them for hours, looking at their flight patterns and paths in the skies above me. The desire to fly and be one among them had grown within me from a young age. One day, while studying the physics of flight, Reverend Yadra E. Solomon took a bunch of us students to the seashore. There he pointed out the birds, and standing by the sea, with the roar of the waves in our ears, the harsh cries of cranes and seagulls as they soared around us, he opened up a new world of aerodynamics, aeronautical design and jet streams and air flows to us. I was one among a group of 15-year-olds, and for me, it was perhaps the most important lesson in science till then. Suddenly, what for me till then had been a matter of fascination, was now explained and made clear. It was as though I had been looking out from behind a cloudy glass window. Now the window had been thrown open and I was looking out into the world with wide open eyes, thirsting to know more. As I made my way through school and then into college at St. Joseph's, Tiruchirappalli, there were many more such moments lying in wait for me. I had realized early on that I needed to keep my mind and ears open, my brain sharpened and focused and there was nothing that I could not learn or absorb if it came my way. At St. Joseph's, when introduced to the concept of subatomic physics by Professor Chinnadur and Professor Krishnamurti, I started thinking for the first time about the hidden world of matter and decay that is present all around us. I learned about half-life periods and the radioactive decay of substances, and suddenly, the world seemed a lot different from the solid certainties that had formed it earlier. I also got thinking about the so-called dualities of science and spirituality. Were they really all that different from each other as they were made out to be? If at a subatomic level particles can become unstable and disintegrate, how far was it removed from the state of all human life? 
science sought to provide answers to all natural phenomena, and spirituality helped us understand our place in the entire scheme of the universe. While one looked at it through the solid certainties of mathematics and formulae, spirituality did so by opening up the mind and heart to experiences and by going deeper within one's own self. Hazily, it started getting apparent to me that the connections between what was becoming my world and the one my father inhabited were not that far removed from one another. From Tiruchirappalli, I went to MIT to study aeronautical engineering. Here, the sight of two decommissioned aircraft reignited my desire to know everything about the fascinating world of human flight. I was drawn towards them like a moth to a flame and realized there was no career possible for me that did not take me into the realm of these man-made flying objects. At MIT, three teachers shaped this desire and took it from a wish to the path of reality. They were Professor Sponder, an Austrian who taught me technical aerodynamics, Professor K. A. V. Pendelai, who taught aerostructure design and analysis, and Professor Nursing Rao, who taught us theoretical aerodynamics. These three teachers showed me just how fascinating a subject aeronautics is. What we perceive as movement and flow is broken down into components that explain how and why objects move in the air. I lost myself in exploring the complex world of fluid dynamics, modes of motion, shock waves, shock wave drag and more. At the same time the structural features of airplanes became clearer to me, and I studied with infinite gusto all about biplanes, monoplanes, tailless planes and many other such areas of study. There were many moments that occurred while I was at MIT when I found myself avidly exploring the world of science. All this was happening at a period in the country's history when, starting from the Prime Minister himself, Jawaharlal Nehru, great emphasis was being laid on the development of the scientific temperament. All around me, especially in an educational institution like ours, I observed that we were being encouraged to leave behind traditional ways of thinking and embrace this new climate. It was best if we used scientific methods in the pursuit of knowledge. Brought up as I was steeped in the religious climate of Rameshwaram, I found this very difficult to do. Instead, I found myself giving shape to my earlier glimmerings of the essential oneness of science and spirituality. I could not make myself acknowledge that sensory perceptions were the only source of knowledge and truth. I had been brought up with the lesson that true reality lay beyond the material world, in the spiritual realm, and that true knowledge lay in exploring the inner self. Now, I was becoming more and more a part of another world, where proofs and experiments and formulae held sway. Gradually I learned to work out my own stand on this, though it took many years to crystallize. Finally, I emerged from the portals of MIT a certified engineer, yet I still had to learn a lot about the world of rockets and missiles that were going to be where my career lay in the future. All I knew then was that a great big world lay open for me to explore and I was determined to do as much of it from high up, way up in the skies. After some years at the DTDNP, Air, where I was part of various teams that designed and built systems ranging from a vertical landing and takeoff platform to what was termed a hot cockpit, I found myself at the Aeronautical Development Establishment, ADE, in Bangalore. It was here, I realize now, that I had my first big opportunity at innovation and learning to build something from scratch. This was to become a recurring pattern in my career. At today, based on my preliminary studies on ground handling equipment, 
it was decided that an indigenous hovercraft prototype should be designed and developed as a ground equipment machine, GM. The director of our day, Dr. Medirata, put together a small team of four, and told me to head it. It was a massive challenge for us. There was neither much literature on it, nor a person who was experienced in this sort of technology whom we could turn to for advice. There were no pre-existing designs or standard components that we could use. In fact, there was nothing much the team had going for it, other than knowing that we had to build a successful flying machine. It was an astounding challenge, I think now, for a group of engineers who had not built a machine ever, leave alone a flying one. We were given three years to complete the project, and we spent the first few months simply floundering, trying to find our feet. Then at one point I decided that we just needed to go ahead with the available hardware and take things as they came. Despite the huge challenge, it was also a project right after my heart and fired my imagination too. We moved from the design process into development after a few months. By now, I was a much more assertive and confident individual, yet my small-town middle-class roots could never leave my soul. Pushed into a world where one needed to direct the work of others while facing the questions and doubts of senior colleagues, it had the same effect on me as an iron that has been forged in fire. People like me, who are intrinsically shy, with the added quality of coming from a different background than my city-bred colleagues, tend to remain hidden in the shadows unless something or someone pushes us center stage. I understood that I had got that push and was determined to use all my knowledge and ingenuity to make the hovercraft project a success. There were many within the organization who questioned the relevance of the project, of the amount of time and money it was using up. They questioned my role in it, too. But my team and I just put our heads down and continued to work. Slowly, stage by stage, the prototype started to take shape. As had once happened when Professor Srinivasan rejected my design work at MIT and I redid my entire work in the span of two nights, I again found now that the mind is unbelievably elastic. It can expand as much as you let it, and once it opens up, there are no barriers, the belief in yourself that comes as a result is something no one can take away from you. The project was christened Nandi, and had the blessings of the then Defense Minister, V.K. Krishnaminan. He firmly believed that this was the beginning of the development of defense equipment in India. He keenly followed our work and after one year, when he inspected the progress we had made, he told Drive Medirata that Kulam and his team are sure to succeed. Indeed, we did succeed. Before our three years were up, we produced a fully working prototype and were ready to show it to the minister. Krishna Menon flew in the Nindi and I piloted it though his security detail would have wished otherwise, and I realized for the first time the sheer joy and exhilaration of creating something, based on our knowledge and teamwork, that was a first for the country. Unfortunately, the story of Nandi does not have a happy ending. Once Krishna Menon was out of office, his successors did not share his optimism about the use of the hovercraft. It became a controversial subject and was finally shelved. If anything could bring me down to earth and show me that sometimes the sky was not the limit, it was this rude lesson, that often there are powers greater than yours who dictate the consequences of your work. My other lesson was that while there are areas that I cannot influence, I can certainly do my work to the best and to the most of my abilities, as finally that is all that remains in one's hands. And who knows just where the consequences of our actions lie.
while I was still trying to recover from the disappointment of Nandi not being put to the use for which it was created, a chain of events led Professor M. G. K. Menon of Tifra to come see it and question me about it. This finally ended with me going to work for Incospar as a rocket engineer, under the direction of Dr. Vikram Sararbhai. After I went to work at Incospar and then SRO, I was entrusted with the development of various types of rockets and space vehicles, ranging from sounding rockets to rocket payloads to satellite launch vehicles. It was Drive Sararbhai's vision to develop India's space program as one where various developmental work happened concurrently, and I was fortunate to be a part of a number of such projects. However, the one that I regard as my most complex challenge has to be the development of the SLV. I was leading a mammoth project of developing a launch vehicle that would put satellites into orbit. It had the potential to not only enhance our position as a technology-driven nation, it would also generate revenues for us by providing launch facilities to other countries who wish to use the SLV to put their satellites into orbit. I have described in detail my journey in the building of SLV in my book, Wings of Fire. It was an extraordinarily difficult journey on account of many factors. There were the invariable complications that arise when a project of this size is developed. We were given a budget, both in terms of time and resource, and it was my responsibility to see that we achieved the result within that budget. It was also a time of great personal stress for me. For within the space of three years I lost three dear ones, Ahmad Jalaluddin, my father and my mother. It was only by drowning myself in my work and keeping my mind firmly focused on the end result that we needed to deliver that I was able to bring the project to fruition. If I am asked now as to what were the biggest lessons I learned in the development of the SLV, I will say there are three aspects. There was the first revelation to me about the role of science and technology, research and engineering in the development of a country. In the number of teams that were working on the SLV there were scientists, researchers and engineers. Who did what and where, as a team leader, I was meant to draw lines and give direction. I learned that science is open-ended and exploratory. That it sets out to find answers like a traveler goes on a voyage. It is, in fact, a voyage into all that is possible and all that will one day be explained and made possible. Science is a joy and passion. Development, on the other hand, is a closed loop. It takes the work done by scientists and moves it a few steps further. It does not allow for mistakes and exploration. In fact, it uses mistakes for making modifications and upgradations. So where the scientists showed us the way and opened up possibilities that enabled us to build an indigenously designed and developed launch vehicle, the engineers kept us on the path of results, given the time and resources we had on hand. For a project of this nature to succeed, it needed all these parts to work in tandem and in sync, like the pieces of an orchestra. The second lesson that came to me was about the nature of commitment. In those years, while I myself thought of little else other than the project, there were many others like me who put in tremendous amounts of hard work and passion into it. Yet, more valuable words of wisdom on this were never said to me than those by Werner von Braun. A giant in the field of rocketry, von Braun had developed the V-2 missiles that destroyed London during World War II. Later, he was inducted into NASA's rocketry program, where he created the Jupiter missile that was the first missile with a high range. He was a scientist, designer, engineer, administrator and a technology manager. He was, indeed, 
the father of modern rocketry. I had the privilege of flying with him when he visited India, when I received him at Chennai and escorted him to Tumba. His words to me about the whole nature of our work are still ingrained in my mind. You should always remember that we don't just build on successes, we also build on failures. On the inevitable hard work and dedication required by those in our profession he said, hard work is not enough in rocketry. It is not a sport where mere hard work can fetch you honors. Here, not only do you have to have a goal, but you also need strategies to achieve it as fast as possible. Total commitment is not just hard work, it is total involvement. It is also about setting a goal. It is having a goal in front of you that makes a difference to the final outcome of your hard work. And these words, that I believe I did follow, do not make rocketry your profession, your livelihood, make it your religion, your mission. At that time in life I put everything other than the SLV project on hold. I also learned to manage stress. It is the way your mind handles the difficulties that are strewn in the path of your goal that determines the result. I truly believe we need these difficulties in order to enjoy the final success of any mission. And this leads on to my third lesson from the SLV project, the ability to deal with setbacks and learn from them. It is now well known that the first experimental flight trial of the SLV-3 ended in disaster, the vehicle plunged into the sea. Stage 1 performed perfectly. It was at the second stage that things went out of control. The flight was terminated after 317 seconds and the vehicle's remains, including the fourth stage with the payload, splashed into the sea, 560 kilometers off Sriharikota. I was numbed beyond belief at the turn of events. Yes, I had experienced failures and setbacks earlier, but this, coming at the end of years of back-breaking hard work, was difficult to absorb. I had no answers as the thought kept racing round and round in my head, what went wrong? I was at the end of my physical capabilities as I had been putting up with enormous stress and now, when all of it had come to naught, there was nothing I could say to myself or to those around me that made any sense. Finally, all I could think of was sleep. I had to sleep, I told myself, before I could go any further on this path of analysis. I remember I must have slept for many hours and was awoken gently by drive Brad Prakash. He was then my boss, but at the time he came to me only as an elder, with concern. He woke me up and made me accompany him to the mess for a meal. We ate together and all the time he gave me solace by not uttering a single word about the launch. The analysis and the rebuilding of the mission would come later. At that moment in time we were just two men, tired beyond belief, yet knowing that what we had created would not come to waste. We knew we had more mountains to climb and higher peaks to conquer in the days to come, but right then he took me under his wings and did what a parent would do to a child after he has lost that coveted race, give him food, let him rest and let him think where the next step lies. And that was perhaps the most important lesson I learned from SLV3. That humaneness, generosity and understanding can never let you down. At the end of the day, when goals have been set and mapped, when the path has been traversed and obstacles met head-on, it is only the values of humanity that will bring true succor. To be able to be gentle and forgiving, compassionate and kind are finally all we need to be in times to come, whether we develop missiles or teach in a school, whether we hold high offices or our parents bringing up children in this confusing world of ours. My journey into the world of science goes on much further from here, 
From Isro I moved to Diadio, where I was part of the teams that built India's first indigenous missile systems, the Prithvi, Trishul, Nag, and Agni. How they were built and the paths they led us on I have chronicled earlier too. While working on them, not only did I understand and assimilate the knowledge about new areas of science and rocketry, I also learned to innovate, to lead more effectively, to communicate and to absorb both setbacks and successes. Why do I need to tell these stories? Perhaps because I feel that in the diverse range of subjects and people I have dealt with, I have encountered almost every aspect of life that can be bewildering. I worked my way through them, and if in my recounting I can help others in similar situations understand the vagaries of life, then I will believe that this journey of mine has been lived not just for me but for countless others too. I am a well in this great land looking at its millions of boys and girls to draw from me the inexhaustible divinity and spread his grace everywhere. As does the water drawn from a well.